American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So some people might think I've overdrawn the picture of Southern economic failure between the 1860s and the 1930s, and maybe that's the case. We, we, could, we could argue about that if you want. But it's still the case that by the 1930s, a lot of people think it hasn't worked, and there are a lot of pieces of evidence suggesting that it hasn't worked, that the South has not been able to transition to a modern capitalist economy in any real sense. So then it's interesting to look at why. Why do people think it doesn't work? And there are a lot of answers available already by the early 20th century. And one thing to keep in mind about these answers is we still hear these answers. When we talk about why different parts of the underdeveloped world remain underdeveloped, you will still hear variants of these answers offered. So. Uh, let's, let's look at uh, the suggestions or the, the claims that are made. They're kind of, uh, they're about four specific categories, and, and we'll talk briefly about each one. The first one uh, is that there's something um, fundamentally or essentially different about people in the South. There's something biologically different, in fact. And of course, with the South, uh, there's a long and extensive history of racial arguments uh, that have been offered already by the 1860s and 70s to explain Southern difference. In other words, to make a long story short, what's different about the South is that there are lots of African Americans. And many whites in the late 19th and early 20th century, even the descendants of abolitionists, have shifted to believing that there's something essentially different about African Americans, and essentially substandard, if you will, essentially inferior to whites. So the argument then becomes, of course, the South cannot industrialize because it doesn't have enough white laborers and it has too many black laborers. They're inefficient, uh, they're lazy, et cetera, et cetera. All of these arguments are offered. So that's the racism argument is the first argument. The second argument uh, is a climate-based argument. And that is uh, that the South is too hot. Uh, and this makes it so that people don't work efficiently enough. And if you don't work efficiently enough, then you're not going to be successful in a competitive capitalist economy. We see this again and again. Varieties of the climate-based argument appear uh, in talking about areas around the world, um, particularly tropical areas. And they don't just talk about climate. They talk about things like disease as well. Uh, the impact of those kind of factors makes a population supposedly unable to fully participate in a modern capitalist economy. So uh, the third argument. The third argument, uh, which was frequently made by white Southerners, was that the South itself was treated by northern corporations and by the federal government as a sort of colonized society. And they actually had some evidence for some pieces of this. For instance, the South uh, could boast, by the early 1900s, a pretty significant cluster of iron and steel manufacturing factories, uh, or particularly around Birmingham, Alabama. But Birmingham steel and iron was always priced by the large corporations which control those factories, corporations typically based in Pittsburgh, at slightly higher 
than the price of Pittsburgh steel. Now obviously this made Birmingham steel less competitive than Pittsburgh steel. But the South didn't have the capital. Uh, there was no, uh, to, to break the control of U.S. steel, there was no individual corporation that was going to be able to wrest the control of all those factories away and price Birmingham steel uh, at, a, at a price that was competitive with Pittsburgh steel. So the idea that unfair pricing practices, unfair trade policies, and things like that work disproportionately against the less politically powerful, less wealthy sectors of a national economy. We also see this today. This is another argument about the international economy, uh, which argues, for instance, uh, that trade barriers, often ones that uh, are uh, unseen or hidden deep in the regulations of Western countries, prevent the exports of particular underdeveloped countries from being competitive in international markets. And then there's one more argument, which is used to explain southern underdevelopment by the 1930s. And that is the fact that the economy as a whole is a low-wage economy. Now, the low wages of the southern economy are precisely what, for instance, get northern textile companies to go and invest in small towns along the fall, the fall line of the North Carolina and South Carolina Piedmont. So it might seem contradictory that this keeps them underdeveloped. But the fact is that there aren't institutions in Southern society, like for instance labor unions uh, or governments which are willing to protect the rights of workers, that help these workers to advocate for higher wages. And if they don't have higher wages, it's hard for them to consume a lot of locally produced goods. And this keeps down the number of other factories. This keeps the economy of those regions of North and South Carolina focused on textile manufacturing. It keeps them linked in a dependent relationship to northern markets. In addition uh, to the, the lack of labor unions, uh, the la lack of advocacy for uh, labor. So as I said, we still see all these arguments today especially when uh, discussions about why inequality persists in the international economy come up. Now, all of these are used, they don't always take the same form. For instance, the, the racist argument uh, that, that was used openly, publicly, until the 1950s in the United States persisted a little longer in talking about international development, but it soon also became something that wasn't viewed as politically correct to talk about in public. But when we hear people talking about cultural difference. We might want to think about whether or not uh, this is just the racial argument in a different form. We might want to think about whether we're what we're still hearing is an argument that says that there's an essential difference between people A and people B that means that people A are cut out for and worthy of enjoying the fruits of modernity and industrial capitalism, and people B should remain trapped in a low-wage economy, essentially as the sort of support services of the prosperity of people A. As I said, we still hear that argument, and we need to be alert for when we hear those arguments. As I said also, there were a total of four arguments, and the other three uh, seem to be uh, still in play in some key ways when we think about the differences between those areas of the world economy which continue to benefit the most from modern-day capitalism and those which benefit the least. It still seems 
that basic problems of climate and disease and the physical environment, basic necessities, uh, these are unequally distributed. And the countries uh, that, that have the least access to things like modern medical care and clean water seem also to be the countries where economic development has the slowest and most difficult time gaining traction. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us. If, for instance, women in Africa often have to walk uh, miles and spend hours every day getting water and fuel, it's probably no surprise that it's harder for them to create entrepreneurial uh, efforts in the economy. It's, it's harder for them to take advantage of things like micro-lending and so on uh, than people have, who have greater access to those kinds of goods. Meanwhile, I think also the argument that the rules of international capitalism don't always favor the poorer countries that specialize in one or two commodities. I think that's also quite true. Uh, and there's a lot more to be said along those lines. But that argument seems to have some real, um, some real purchase as well. And finally, it's also the case that where economies really take off the most rapidly, that development is often associated with a broadening of purchasing power. More consumers mean more products getting sold, obviously, and also a greater variety of products getting sold and greater opportunities for entrepreneurs to open up small, medium, and even large-sized endeavors. These things are simply not possible when labor is kept poor, where people are paid near starvation wages. There are arguments uh, that, that say that labor is getting properly priced in those kind of contexts, uh, but in those cases, we could look at the third, uh, the third argument and ask what is it in the international distribution of political power that allows these kinds of uh, uh, practices of keeping some people extremely low wage to persist. So all, of, all three uh, of those arguments seem to be um, still effective, um, still relevant in, in, uh, in contemporary circumstances. And that to me suggests that they might also have a lot to say in explaining why the South remained poor. information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist, or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.